Hello, friends. Welcome to In With The Old. We are a podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's Word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. You're joining us now for episode 10, the story of the Old Testament, and I'm joined by my co-host, Brian Koning. Brian, how are you doing today? (sighs) Tim, I'm sad. I'm really sad. You know why? (laughs) Why is that? Because we're at the end of series one. Oh. This is the last episode at our first uh, something old, something new kind of beginning of the podcast. And, and it's kind of sad that we've reached the end of this journey together. You know, it, it's sad and, and unbelievable. It's unbelievable, really. But uh, man, we've been through so much and it's been a ton of fun thinking about the Old Testament, trying to give people a framework for how we can become active and, and good readers. Uh, we've talked about a lot of things and, and I loved our episode on, on Habakkuk. If you haven't listened that, to that yet, check it out. Uh, but today, Brian, we're doing something a little bit different. Uh, but in keeping with what we've done, today we're trying to do a meta narrative or, or kind of a 30,000 foot view of the Old Testament. And so, in one sense, this episode can kind of stand alone, but in another sense, it's really going to be helpful for everything else that we've talked about. Uh, so, Brian, tell us a little bit about what what is a meta narrative? If people aren't familiar with that language, what is it and why is it important as we read the Old Testament? Sure. So a meta narrative is simply a story that spans other stories. So for example, pick any major film franchise that you like, Star Wars, Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. Within each of these, there are lots of little stories, right? I'm thinking of Lord of the Rings. There's lots of fun stories about the Hobbits and Merry and Pippin and their shenanigans. There's stories about Legolas and Gimli and how they <laughs> kind of hate each other and grow to love each other uh, by the end, right, as brothers in arms. But overarching all of that is the ring and Sauron. Will it be destroyed, right? So that yeah. big big story is what we can call the meta narrative and underneath it you have lots of little stories well this is going to help us in the old testament because you can pick up the book of genesis right the book of joshua and you can go to a chapter and you'll get a little story and that story is important it informs us about a lot of things but spanning all of that and not just one book but all the books of the old testament is a meta narrative that is what is the story of god from the entire old testament And as we're not finishing the podcast series, let's be clear about that, the podcast continues on, but this first series of Something Old, Something New, Mm -hmm. we wanted to tell that story uh, as maybe a good springboard into our next series, Series 2, as well as maybe just a helpful information. Because, Tim, I don't think we often take that step back and get to that uh, 30,000-foot view very often, do we? Normally in a sermon, we're, we're in one text one passage. Um, and and there's value to step back and go, I want to appreciate the entire forest, mm-hmm. not just this individual tree today. So that's that's our goal today. Yeah, absolutely. And and the encouragement I think we would give to our listeners is the more we know this meta narrative, the more we understand the the unfolding of the story, the more we're actually going to get out of the individual parts. Uh, And so this is something that's worth taking the time to refresh ourselves on. Maybe you feel like you know the story, but we'll maybe give you some more details. Uh, The more we know this, the more it's going to pay off. Uh, And Brian, uh, before we jump into kind of the signposts that that are helpful, sort of the the big mountain peaks, as it were, flying over 30,000 feet, I I do want to distinguish between what we're trying to do and say, you know, coming up with a framework that might be helpful, but not necessarily drawn from the text itself. Uh, Some people 
talk about meta narrative and they'll say, okay, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, or something like that. Um, that's not really what we're talking about here. We're, we're talking about a meta narrative using not an external category on the text, but really drawing from the text itself the, the major signposts or the, the major events, the major texts that really kind of propel the story forward. So we're not coming at it from a systematic theological perspective. We're coming at it from more of a biblical, textual, theological perspective. Uh, and that's that's something that's just worth keeping in mind. There are other frameworks that might say this is meta narrative. We're trying to be as true to the text as possible. Uh, and not that those others aren't true, but just drawing it from the text itself, which is why we're going to talk about some texts, aren't we, Brian? Yeah, so we're trying to pick out where does the story really get pushed forward in significant ways. Using that 30,000-foot kind of uh, mental image, you see peaks of mountains as you fly over, but you don't always see the valleys and plains as clearly. Mm -hmm. And so we're asking, well, where are the peaks? What passages is the Old Testament story kind of pushed forward on? And we're going to talk about five specific stories that you can kind of go, this will help you understand and maybe find the significance of all the other stories in between. This is where the story kind of makes a a leap forward, as it were, as we are pushing towards the New Testament and the coming of Christ. And so we're going to start at the beginning, because you kind of have to start at the beginning, (laughs) right? Um, So our our first signpost, maybe unsurprisingly, is Genesis chapter 1. So Genesis chapter 1, Tim, is uh, a bit of an odd duck and... Mm -hmm. The, the reason I say that is the book of Genesis is broken up quite intentionally with a phrase. In Hebrew, it's toledoth, or these are the generations, is how we normally translate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's a signpost that the author has given us to say, hey, here's where the next section takes place. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting, the first example of toledoth is actually Genesis chapter 2, right? It's not in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 sticks out a little bit. And that's kind of intentional because it's serving as this introduction. Mm -hmm. And so that's how, at least in my preaching and teaching of this to my students, I say, look, Genesis 1 is that prologue. The author is trying to tell us some key things to orientate us to the story. Mm -hmm. Tim, maybe help us out here. How does, what does Genesis 1 put forward as important things to know in this story? Yeah, and, and Genesis 1 is beautiful. Genesis 1 is in, is incredible and meticulously written, uh, but it's all about God. It, it really is setting the stage of creation under the lordship of God, and we learn a few things. First, that God is the creator of all things. I mean, literally, first verse is what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and that's so simple that we can learn to remember it remember it as three-year-olds, but it's so profound that we can think about it all of our lives and and think, okay, what does it mean that God is the creator? Well, it means that he's in control of all things. Uh, And even as we see the creation of all things in the first verse, we see that God doesn't just create them and and sort of set the top spinning. He, He really creates order, and he creates beauty, and he creates a world that's inhabitable and designed so that we as human beings can fellowship with him, can know him. And so God immediately mm-hmm. comes as a God who, who you know, dispenses chaos from his kingdom, right? I mean, he, he overcomes it, but there's no battle. There, there's no, you know, God gets, gets, you know, a sword in his hand and goes and defeats something. No, he just, he speaks, 
God is so powerful. He's so far above and beyond anything else that he, he just creates by the power of his word. Uh, creation has no choice but to obey his will. There is no battle. Uh, but the amazing thing as we read through Genesis 1 is that God doesn't just create and, and creation doesn't just respond. God brings this beauty in this order, in this goodness, right? I mean, the, the toveness of creation, that, mm. that everything is, is in perfect harmony, that God is sitting on his throne, uh, and that God creates the world. And this is maybe the, the coolest part of all. He creates the world so that we can enjoy it and we can enjoy him. So he's personal. He's not some kind of cosmic force, but he created us so that we could have a harmonious relationship with him, living under him, ruling over creation, but God created us so that we could dwell in his presence. And so as humans, we do have a privileged place, and that comes into play in Genesis 1, 26-28, right? Let us make man in our image, in the image of God he made them, male and female he created them, and then he gave them orders to rule and subdue the earth, right? To, to steward it well and to, to extend his reign to the ends of the earth. So Genesis 1 it really tells us how God intended the world to be. And by the end of Genesis 1, he says, it's very good. In other words, mm. Brian, I almost think of it like this, and I hope I'm not taking this too far, but you you almost feel the joy of God bubbling over. You know, even even as God didn't need us before creation, it's it's almost like we see that satisfaction of God as he creates the world in six days. He rests on the seventh day, not because he was tired, but because he's he's taking in and enjoying this creation that he's made. Um, I don't think it's possible to overestimate the glory and the goodness of the world that God created in Genesis 1. And, and to us, as we reflect on it, it really serves to reflect the goodness of God, that he would be so meticulous, that he would give us such an incredible gift, first in the world itself, but also, and even more importantly, to have that relationship with him. So Genesis 1, absolutely incredible. And if we get Genesis 1 wrong, uh, we're going to miss everything else. Uh but Brian, and this is where, right, if we're going 30,000 feet, we must be on something that's moving pretty fast. So we're going to skip Genesis 2 uh, and go straight to Genesis 3. Tell us a little bit about Genesis 3. We see the glory in Genesis 1, but what happens in Genesis 3? Yeah, so in Genesis 3, we move from the world as God created it and, and the beauty and the pleasure God is taking from it, right? Because he doesn't create out of need. He creates out of desire, and in Genesis 3, we have what's called the fall, and the world switches from that to what it is now. And we, we've touched on this a couple times in various podcasts, right, Tim, about the serpent, mm -hmm. what's going on there. Um, but the, the skim over is that people begin to doubt the word of God. Mm -hmm. uh, did God really say? And that's such a fascinating and intriguing line of questioning that the serpent opens, because mm -hmm. He doesn't lie from a specific standpoint, right? He doesn't actually say a falsehood, but he omits lots of things and lets uh, the man and the woman fill in the blanks, and they fill in the blanks incorrectly. Maybe God has kept something back from us in this creation. Maybe there's more to know, and that's what this tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, contains. And so mm. um, what we see is humanity falling, being tricked, 
Eve or the woman rather takes of the fruit and eats and then gives to Adam. And it's fascinating, right? Adam is the one blamed for this event going forward in scripture. Uh, Paul does say, right, Eve was deceived first, but Paul also very clearly lays the blame at Adam's feet. John Salehammer in this passage brings up, I think, a fascinating point. He says the tragedy, the ironic tragedy of the fall is that the people who were made in the image of God and the likeness of God eat of the tree and then realize that they are no longer even like one another. Right, because as soon as they eat of the tree, their eyes are opened and they realize they're naked and are ashamed. Unlike the end of Genesis 2, where they are naked and not ashamed. Um, You have this tragic breaking and sin is introduced into the world. And what we see here, Tim, is the unmaking of Genesis 1. Mm -hmm. Every good thing that was there, the toveness, and tove is uh, Hebrew for good. I'm guessing most of us already know that, but... um, that that toveness, that goodness is now corrupted. It's not destroyed. We still have people being called the image of God a little bit later. That's something Dr. Tim is very uh, <laughs> has a lot of background knowledge because that was his dissertation work. But it's no longer exactly what it was meant to be, was it? Uh, it's now been changed. Not just human relationships, that is now most certainly broken, but creation itself now groans, the New Testament tells us, yeah. uh, under the weight of sin, waiting for redemption. So we get the world as it is now. It is no longer perfect. It is fallen. It is away from God. And we're left at the end of Genesis 3, I think, with an interesting question. In Genesis 1, we see there our primary character of the story is God. He creates. He has desires for humanity and relationship. Genesis 3, humanity has now walked away from that relationship. Where do we go from here? Hmm. Does God just wash his hands and go, well, that was a mistake. Uh, We're going to try again somewhere else and try something else. Or are we going to fight? Is God going to not give up? And we do see that as even Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They're given garments of skin. Giving clothes in the ancient world was a a symbol of relationship that Hmm. they are not done. Adam names Eve, which we've already mentioned is probably a bad sign for their relationship, but the name he gives her is mother of all the living. Mm. There is still trust that this story is now broken. We've now hit the uh, the problem, the inciting conflict, but it is not done. We are going to push this forward. God in some way, somehow is not going to let the serpent have the last word. Instead, he is going to be working to bring people back to him. Now, for the next couple chapters of Genesis, we see the outworking of sin. We go from taking an apple product without reading the terms and conditions in Genesis 3 (laughs) to a brother killing a brother to uh, polygamy to mass murder. Like it just, we quickly ramp up the effects of sin in the world until we get. it's so tragic, isn't it, Tim, when we get to the time of Noah, yes. and it's the intention of man's heart is on evil constantly. Mm-hmm. And the thing, we're not really stopping at the flood story, but the thing I just want to mention in passing, that doesn't go away post-flood. Yeah. Right? It's not like we've somehow fixed that. This is the state of humanity. The intention of the heart is on evil constantly. Mm-hmm. But we do need to fix it, and we get to our third signpost. So our first one is Genesis 1, creation. Then Genesis 3, the fall, that's our second signpost. Our third signpost happens in Genesis chapter 12. Who do we meet in Genesis chapter 12, Tim? Yeah, so we meet Abraham. 
the father of faith. And, you know, as we think about the, the progression of the story, and it pains us, doesn't it, Brian, to move so quickly, but in, in essence, there, there's not just a, a quantitative difference between the goodness in Genesis 1 and the brokenness in Genesis 3 through 11. It really is a qualitative difference, right? The relationship yeah. with God is fundamentally broken. And, and the irony of sin is that sin ha- makes promises that it can't deliver. And of course, the temptation of sin in every single one of those instances is that human beings refuse to trust in the Word of God. And so it, it's no surprise and it's no coincidence that Abraham comes on the scene as the father of faith. Why? Because in one sense, faith is the antidote to all of the sins that we've seen committed up to this point. So brokenness in relationship, but God reaches out to Abraham, right? And, and there's a transformation. He begins as Abram, later to become Abraham. I'm just going to refer to him as Abraham throughout for simplicity. It's easier. Yeah. But Abraham is one of the most important figures in the story. Um, and really, in the story of world history, even taking out the Bible, I mean, he's the progenitor of numerous peoples, three different religions trace their ancestry back to Abraham. Uh, but when we think about his importance in the story of faith, his importance is, is that he had faith. And it's not that he was perfect, but he trusted in God, and God gave him really a series of promises that he was going to bless Abraham, and that he was going to bless those who bless him, he's going to curse those who curse them, he's going to bless him with land, he's going to bless him with descendants. But I think even most important of all, he is going to use Abraham both as the model of faith and as the father of those who have faith. He's going to use Abraham and his descendants to bring about a blessing for all nations, And so the promises that God makes to Abraham are picked up, for instance, in the New Testament. As Paul says, those promises can be applied to us who, by faith, are actually Abraham's sons. But at this point, the world is broken, and God is seeking to renew it. And to me, again, the emphasis is, how is he going to renew it? He's going to renew it by creating for himself a new people who do trust him. By, by bringing about and drawing out faith in a group of people who are going to be called by his name. And Abraham is promised that his lineage is going to be used to save the world. So um, as, as we think about this, uh, and, and Brian, I love this, this quote from N.T. Wright, Abraham emerges within the structure of Genesis as the answer to the plight of all humankind. The line of disaster and the curse from Adam through Cain through the flood to Babel begins to be reversed when God calls Abraham and says, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there's a reversal, and it's a small reversal at first, but it's almost like a a little bit of yeast that leavens the whole lump of dough. Faith is going to become the antidote, and God makes that covenant with Abraham uh, in such a way that God basically puts it on himself, right? I'm going to do this. It's going to happen. Yes, I want you to respond. Yes, obedience is going to be the evidence of faith, but God basically says, I'm not going to start over. I'm not going to destroy the world. I am going to save the world, and I'm going to show my power and show my glory by even doing so through sinful humans, like Abraham and like all of us, but Abraham becomes the father of faith, and his descendants become the central characters in the story as God continues to work out his plans. If I can jump in here real quick, Tim, another interesting part of the Abram story, and Abraham in the book of Genesis takes up chapters 
what, 12 through 25, so Mm -hmm. a decent chunk of the book. As God makes those covenants with Abram, I'm thinking especially of Genesis 15, an interesting element is introduced into the story. Mm -hmm. So listeners, right, if we're following along from a story, we know God created people to be in relationship with him. He wants that. We see that even in the fall as that relationship breaks. He still wants that. We see in Abram's call specifically, God still wants relationship with all people. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, right? But we also have this curse, this death is the consequence of the fall. What are we going to do with that? Well, in Genesis 15, we have this interesting covenant that's made, right? And and in that story, God commands Abram to take animals, to cut them, to lay them apart. That's We can get into how you make covenants maybe in another podcast, but that's fairly standard fare, right? Mm -hmm. You're supposed to walk between these animals and it's supposed to be symbolic. May the gods strike me dead if I break this covenant, right? An interesting thing happens there, though. When it's time to walk through the animals (laughs) to make this covenant, to get this plan going, what happens to Abram? Well, he falls asleep, right? A sleep comes upon him and he wakes up to see these uh, representations of God going through the animals, Mm -hmm. Right, and, and we get this covenant. Now, Tim, you may not agree with me on this. Not everyone agrees on this, so I just want to put that out there. <laughs> but I find this fascinating, that the covenant, when it is ratified, only God walked through it. Yeah, yeah. None of the consequences, none of the death implied by a failure on either party is put on the human Abram in this case. Mm-hmm. But instead, God has done something truly extraordinary. He's accepted, if you will, the consequences of failure for both parties. He, of course, is faithful. He's not going to fail the covenant. But how faithful are the human parts? Well, as Tim has said multiple times, we're all sinners. Yeah. This, if we're reading from a narrative standpoint, I think introduces a question that we are supposed to now have in the back of our mind for the rest of the Old Testament. Wait, if humans sin in this covenant, death is supposed to be the consequence of that. We most clearly have, but God has taken that covenant mm-hmm. curse upon himself. In some way, God has said he is going to bear the consequence of death. Mm. How? How yeah. does that work? I think that question is not going to be foregrounded very often, but I think it's supposed to be working in the back of our mind. Somehow in, God, in how God is planning to reverse this, it is going to involve his death. As I said, not everyone agrees with me. Some people think that's reading too much back. I think it makes sense, but um, I just wanted to put that out there. It's not necessarily a signpost, but I think it's a question that begins driving us towards some of the threads that then come together, not in the Old Testament, but come together in the New Testament. Wow, yeah. No, I love that idea, Brian. And, you know, we could talk about Genesis 22, you know, that God supplies a sacrifice. Uh, but I love yep. this as we think about the Genesis story, because we're going to have to fly through, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, you, you could not, you know, Jerry Springer could not think up a better story <laughs> uh, in terms of the dysfunction and the unfaithfulness of humans than we read in the book of Genesis. It is, it is. I often say, I often say HBO is willing to make Game of Thrones, but there's no way they would touch a literal <laughs> adaptation of the Old Testament. Oh, wow. No way, in, no way in the world. Wow. No, and it's so true. But I think, again, that's one of the reasons why we love this, isn't it? Because it's so real. Like, there, there is no pulling punches. This is the brokenness of the world as it truly stands. And, uh, and yet, God's faithfulness is true throughout. And so... Abraham has Isaac, Mm. Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, 
you know, you have the story of Joseph, the people of Israel moved to Egypt. And again, we're, it's painful, isn't it, Brian, to skip so much? But the people of Israel, we're flying so fast. The people of Israel multiply. They become a great nation. They're enslaved under Pharaoh, but God remembering his covenant. And Brian, I've got to tell you this. My daughter the other night, she was she's trying to read through the Old Testament out, you know, reading it herself. And she was actually reading it to my daughter where she read uh, there in Exodus in the first chapters where she said, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And uh, and I heard her reading it out loud. I almost wanted to cry because I was just so happy to hear it. Um, but she remembered it. He remembered the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of that, he says, I'm going to come down and deliver my people. So this is where there's a switch, right? It's no longer, uh, only Abraham or even Abraham's small family. God is now going to create a nation for himself. And from that nation, uh, he's going to give them a structure. He's going to give them instructions. He's going to give them the law. So the next major passage is Exodus 20. Israel is at Mount Sinai. God has brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. He demonstrates his sovereignty. He demonstrates his power to save. He brings them to Sinai, and then he establishes them as a nation. Um, so at Mount Sinai, he gives the law to his people. And Brian, can you talk to us a little bit about the law, about Israel at Mount Sinai, and how Exodus 20 is the next major signpost? Yeah, so we've reached Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. We've come out of captivity. Uh, Most people, I think, we maybe remember, but we kind of forget unless we think about it, uh, that in Exodus, you aren't just dealing with the 10 plagues and trying to leave Egypt. Yes, that's there, but that's only like the first third of the book. And and then we're out, right? Uh, And at Exodus 20, we've come to Mount Sinai and the law is going to be given to Moses. And just to set the scene, this is a fascinating point that God came to save this people before the law is given. Yes. God acts first. He did not say, you have to get right with me and then I'm going to come save you. He says, as Tim, you pointed out, right? He remembered his covenant. And so he came, he delivers, he brings his people out. And now we're going to give the law. Uh, Listeners, there is some debate on when we are in time, but we can start kind of mapping events in time. We can even probably map Abram to some to some extent, probably uh, around the year 2000 BC, somewhere around there. But with uh, Israel leaving, we're probably up to the time of Amenhotep II of the 18th dynasty in Egypt. So one of the interesting things is as you move forward in the meta narratives of scripture, you could start kind of locating things in real space time, which maybe helps us. But at this, uh, at this point in the story, God does something interesting. He's going to give this law. He's going to come down and say, all right, we are going to establish, Israel, the rules of relationship for your society and how we are going to relate. And he's going to give, most famously, as Mel Brooks said, the 15, oh wait, no, 10, 10 commandments, because he <laughs> drops one of the stones. Uh, okay, maybe that, maybe that's not really history, but we're given these 10 commandments, which are, uh, Tim, right there, that's somewhat of a misnomer. The commandments are summary statements. Mm-hmm. The law itself, the actual mitzvot is uh, right over 600 actual commandments. Um, but the, these 10 are the summary statements outlining the relationship between God and his people. Uh, although the 10 commandments are going to be given to us here in Exodus chapter 20, the remainder is found at 
the rest of the book of Exodus and Leviticus and a little bit in Numbers as well. But this law is going to establish a few important things. First, that Israel is to be defined as a nation that worships one God and one God only. This is very much in keeping if we've been tracking with the story of the creation story. How many gods were involved in creation? How many gods were involved in creating people as their image and likeness? One. So relationship with this one God is the only thing that should concern them. Hmm. Right? You don't make any uh, idols for God is the creator, not the creation. It doesn't matter what you model it after. You will be modeling it after the creation, not the creator. So don't make any idols. And so this law sets out Israel's relationship to God. It also is going to spend six of the commandments dealing with how they deal with each other. But it's also going to give Israel an important moniker. They're going to be called a kingdom of priests, a kingdom of priests. And that's an important designation. Peter's going to use it of the church Mm -hmm. in the New Testament. But Tim, there's something interesting about priests. They don't serve for their own benefit, do they? It's not like you walk into a church and like, this is just a church of priests for priests by priests. Mm -hmm. No, priests serve on the behalf of others. So from this point forward, from Exodus 20 forward, we are going to be focusing in. You can be thinking of the story so far of the world of, uh, of the Old Testament that has been focusing in from a very broad view of all creation, now down to kind of just a family line. Now we're just focused on only one nation. This is going to be the story of Israel going forward. But don't assume that God has forgotten the rest of the world. Israel is a kingdom of priests, and that tells us they are not serving just for their own good. I mean, they have priests within the nation, but the entire nation is called a kingdom of priests because God is still desiring, right, all the families of the earth to be blessed. That's still a through line pushing us forward. We're still trying to see how is God going to accomplish this. But he now sets through this law Israel as a fundamental arbiter of bringing that forward. They are going to be somehow involved in pushing forward God's redemptive plan and plan of salvation for the other nations around them. So post-Exodus chapter 20, right, we have the rest of the Torah. We have Israel going out to the promised land. All the foibles that happen there, the desert wilderness, the wanderings. We have the time of the judges. It hurts. It really hurts, Tim, going this fast. (laughs) I'm just like, and that was my one-sentence summary of the book of Judges. Moving on. Yeah. (laughs) But the important important thing is, although this is a high and lofty call, we see there are faltering steps here. We see some faithfulness, especially like the second generation that enters the promised land. They do a pretty good job. Not a perfect job, but a pretty good job of following after God. But at the time of the judges, it shows us uh, that things start going bad. The key phrase of the book of Judges, right? They uh, Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Mm-hmm. And this affected not just the sinners, but even the righteous. Um, Tim, this got pointed out to me, so I can't take credit for it. Will Varner uh, pointed this out. But um, in the book of Judges, even one of the judges, Samson, the dude bro, uh, <laughs> right? He gets in trouble for being married. Have you ever looked at what it says when he first gets married? He says, Father, go and get her for me because she looks good in my eyes. Mm, Yeah, yeah. Everyone did what was right in his own. Like, it's supposed to, like, hit you over the head. Like, oh, even the judge has fallen prey to these sins, this degradation of the people. Anyway, the time of judges ends with the last judge, a man by the name of Samuel. 
And Samuel transitions us to the time of the kings. So Samuel, as he is called, anoints first King Saul. Well, that went initially pretty good and then kind of goes downhill. (laughs) But eventually then he comes around and anoints the man you love, I love, we all love, King David, the second king. Um, And Tim, can you walk us through maybe just a little bit of David's history to lead up to our fifth and final signpost, which is 2 Samuel chapter 7? Yeah, Brian, I'd love to. Uh, So David is a shepherd, and and God calls him out of the field. And the famous story with Samuel, you know, seeing all of the sons of Jesse and and thinking he has the king and the first son, and then the second and the third, and then God speaking to him the whole time and says this famous phrase, man looks at outward the outward appearance, but God looks at the inward of heart. And uh, and so imagine being one of those brothers and hearing that, like, <laughs> oof, yeah, oh man, so close yet so far. Um, but God calls David, and then uh, the Spirit of God comes on David as he's anointed by Samuel as the one who is anointed, he then uh, becomes a warrior, right? Uh, especially because that was the need of the day. The The Israelites were threatened uh, by the Philistines in particular, by others as well. David goes and, and famously slays Goliath. He becomes a mighty warrior in Saul's army. Eventually, after a series of setbacks and near-death experiences at the hand of Saul, God is going to raise up uh, David to ascend to the throne. David is going to show that he is a man after God's own heart, even bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. And David really uh, becomes a model, not just as a shepherd or a warrior, but also as a worshiper, uh, as a poet, as someone who's willing to shame himself by dancing before the Ark of God. So there are so many things uh, that we look to David and say, how inspiring uh, and it's in, in that light and in that vein that even as David thinks, okay, well, what else can I do? He wants to build a house for God, literally a temple. God presses pause on that, and he says, no, 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 David, and this is Second Samuel 7, our next signpost, uh, and really our final signpost. In Second Samuel 7, he says, no, David, you aren't going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And, and this is where we see that outworking of redemption that began with Abraham uh, and then worked through Abraham's children, through the nation of Israel, the nations will be blessed. He then shows us that David will be the one through whom the blessing comes. And he promises David, he says, David, I'm going to establish your kingdom forever. I'm going to choose one of your sons uh, who's going to rule on that throne. And, uh, and David, of course, in the end, even after he receives this promise, uh, David falls and fails miserably. He, he's, he's very flawed. Uh, and of course, with, with David, Bathsheba, Uriah, really it all comes back to David. I mean, David had the power. David had the authority. David took advantage of Bathsheba. He ended up uh, being uh, really complicit in the murder of Uriah. And yet, what do we see in David? We see someone who shows true repentance, for instance, in Psalm 51. Um, and, and we see that David, even as great as he is as a king, the end of David's life, the end of his reign, really the, the wheels begin to, to fall off. We see the family dysfunction. Uh, yes, his son Solomon reigns, but very quickly after David, the, the kingdom really is split apart. Things aren't going well, but the promise is given to David. Uh, there is going to be a king, there's going to be a deliverer, there's going to be a son of David, and God makes that promise, and again, he signs the check himself, 
And really, as we think of the, the rest of the Old Testament, we see kind of the, the turmoil of, of how that promise is going to be brought about. How, how is it that God's going to stay true to his promise to David? And, uh, and to summarize a vast swath of material in, in just a couple of short sentences, Israel is unfaithful, Judah is unfaithful, but God consistently tells through his prophets that he will remain faithful, that there will be a remnant, and one day a branch of David will emerge in his promises, both to Abraham, to Israel as a nation, to David. They will come true through another one who's going to be anointed, who is going to be, in one sense, the greater David. He's going to be the one who is truly faithful. And uh, and Brian, as the Old Testament draws to an end, and feel free to fill in any of those gaps, as the Old Testament draws to an end, it really ends almost with an arrow pointing forward telling us the story isn't done. Tell us a little bit about the end of the Old Testament. Yeah, so if 2 Samuel 7 is a kind of our last signpost, you might notice you're only about halfway through the Old Testament, as Tim said, right? There's still a lot going forward, but it is in one sense, if you're looking at broad strokes, very easy to summarize the back half of that Old Testament. It's looking, is this the anointed one? And Tim, what's the Hebrew word for being anointed? It's the Mashiach, yeah. or what we will eventually call the Messiah, mm. which in Greek is going to be Christos. So, right, you can see the through line in that way. But this kind of looking for is, all right, David is, is promised that we're going to have a deliverer, a king who will live forever. Well, a king that can live forever can probably be really good for the people of God, can maybe be the answer. If death is the consequence of the fall, a king who lives forever is proof that the, the fall has been overdone, Right. Death is no more. This king doesn't die. And and yet the tragedy of the Old Testament from this point forward is that kings keep coming to the throne and they are still poor. Mm. Solomon, uh, and I think this is important, right? Solomon was viewed as this, is this the Messiah? He builds the temple. Mm-hmm. And then we see the tragedy that wisdom alone is insufficient to keep you from sin. Mm-hmm. And he just gets his life twisted around after him. Of course, the, the kingdom splits, and we go to the end of the Old Testament, and a question hangs over us. Where was the Messiah? Mm. It's so fascinating that this kind of high point of Old Testament theology is halfway through the book, and then it just doesn't come back. And we're left, well, this book, it's a great book. It's a great story. It has no conclusion. Mm-hmm. And that ending, though, is then what pushes us to the New Testament. If you are like me and have read the uh, English ordering of the Old Testament, right? You can read the book of Malachi and then flip over to Matthew and go, well, that's cool. <laughs> um, I, I don't really see a big connection. Well, um, Malachi ends the Old Testament in some orderings, but we do have another book that ends the Old Testament in the traditional Tanakh ordering, and that's the book of Chronicles. Mm-hmm. And here, Tim, I think we see something quite fascinating. Remember that the writers of the New Testament, especially I'm thinking of Matthew, who's going to lead off the New Testament, is Jewish. Well, if he's operating from the Jewish order in the Old Testament, the last book of the Tanakh is Chronicles. Mm -hmm. And Chronicles is specifically a look at the kings of David, all of his heirs going through the end, asking where is this Messiah? And Chronicles, Second Chronicles in, in our Bibles, ends right with this idea of whoever uh, it's, is it King Darius? Um, saying whoever uh, 
God is with, may he go up to Jerusalem, right? It ends mm-hmm. with this question mark, this kind of hopeful note of the king still exists. They're in exile. They're not extinct. Whoever God is with, may he go up to Jerusalem. Flip over now to the book of Matthew. Matthew is going to begin. This is the, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abram. Think now to our signpost, friends, as we've tried to put together the Old Testament. Where are the big covenant changing points in the history of the Old Testament? Where do they take place? They take place with Abram. They take place with David. Hmm. Matthew is the answer to that question that the Old Testament, I think, leaves us with. Going, where's the Messiah? Matthew says, I found him. Hmm. He's from the right line. He's from Abram. He's from David. And he's going to fulfill one of the key things of the book of Matthew is Jesus is kind of recapitulating in his own life, the history of the Old Testament, reversing it, reversing the uh, the exodus as he comes across the Jordan and back into the promised land. Yes. So I, I think one of the beauties of seeing this the, the Bible from a meta-narrative perspective is we get to see kind of the long game, the long hopes, the long dreams. Of course, if I was right about like Genesis 15 asking, well, how is God supposed to take the curse, take death upon himself? Christ is the answer to that. When he becomes a curse, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. Yes. Um, and, and so I think there's great pleasure and great benefit Uh, to our spiritual lives by seeing this story, by being able to track the story of God from creation, where things started, to the fall, to where things are now, the call of Abraham, where we begin to zero in on God's plan to redeem the world, through the people of Israel at Sinai, through David, singling down to the king of Israel that we're looking for, which leads us so nicely into the New Testament. Yeah, and as we think about that, you know, the more we understand the story, the more we'll enjoy the story, the more we'll appreciate its beauty. And of course, it it does lead us to worship, doesn't it? As we think about the fact that the Old Testament places us on a trajectory that points us forward to Christ, and we're so thankful for that. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. This is the last one in our first series, as, as we've said, but we do want to let you know a little bit about where the podcast is going next. So, Uh, We're going to be doing some interview podcasts as well as some Q&A episodes between the series. Uh, So each one of those will kind of stand alone. We're hoping to interview various authors of of works on the Old Testament, uh, let them give their perspective and and glean some insights from them. Also, we want to take your questions. And so if you have any questions, um, we've already received some, and we're going to look forward to answering those. You can email those to us at inwiththeoldpodcast at outlook.com. Dot com, or you can follow us on Facebook and hit us up that way. But again, that's in with the old podcast at outlook.com, or you can hit us up on Facebook, other social media as well. And then what's coming next in series two, we're going to be talking about the top myths of the Old Testament. Uh, as we think about the Old Testament, a lot of misnomers, a lot of mistakes, a lot of myths. We're going to try and tackle those to help bring some clarity to some thorny issues. We hope that you're looking forward to that. We're going to have a trailer coming out soon. Thank you so much, Dr. Brian Koning, for this first series. It's been a blast. And uh, thank you so much to our listeners for joining us on this journey. We are thankful for you. Feel free to share this content with anyone you know it would help. And, uh, and God bless you as, uh, as we end this series. And as always, stay cool, stay old. <laughs>